Kenyon Wilson, a professor at the University of Tennessee, decided to do a little experiment to see if his students in this music class he was teaching were going to really read the syllabus. So he had a three-page syllabus, and on page two of the syllabus, kind of buried in there, he put a secret code and directions to a locker. He had taken this locker and put $50 cash in it and locked it up. So whichever student was the first one to read that in the syllabus and go get it was going to get the $50. There were 70 students in the class. The professor never said another word about it other than the first day of class. When the semester ended, all 70 students went home, and guess where the $50 was? (laughs) It was still in the locker. Now, it's not the same because the Bible is not just a syllabus. But I thought of that in an analogous fashion that like that syllabus in this sense, the Bible is full of so much wonderful treasure, but you got to read it to find that treasure. I want to invite your attention today to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Either if you have a Bible, it'll also be on the screen. And I want to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to be looking at. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand On the highest point of the temple, if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of God. You can be seated. What should we value as a church? What, what should be important to us? What should be significant to us? What should drive us as a church? At Harvest, we've just completed a series, 40 Days of Prayer, in which we took six weeks, well, really seven weeks, counting uh, New Year's Eve where we introed it, going through the letter, the New Testament letter of Colossians. And we learned many things there, but one of the key things we learned there at the center of Colossians was this statement about who Jesus was. And Jesus you know, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, et cetera, et cetera, and the head of the church. So think with me, if Jesus is the head of the church, then we as a local expression, one of many, many local expressions of his church, we should value what the head values, right? We should want to know what matters to Jesus, What does Jesus care about? What are his values? And that's what this series that we intro today is. It's called Head Values, Heart Values. And it's really a double entendre. The head, what the head values, Jesus, we want to value in our heart. And we also don't want to only value these things in our heads where we can say them, but we really want them to be heart values that we're driven by. And we're going to look at a different value every Sunday. And of course, again, as Amy mentioned a few minutes ago, if you, if you'd like to, uh, Follow along in the week and prep for it. Maybe talk about it in your groups that, that you're involved with or in your family or with other, other people. You can do that through that book. Today, the value is scripture. Jesus valued scripture. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at this passage, Matthew 4, and basically we're going to answer three questions from this passage. First of all, what was Jesus being tempted to do here? There were three different temptations. What was he being tempted to do? Second, how did he overcome temptation? We see that he, he did win. How did he do that? And then third, knowing that part of that is the way he valued Scripture, how should the way that he valued Scripture and showed us in this passage that he values Scripture, how should that impact us today? So here's the context. Here's the setting. We're in Matthew 4. In the early chapters of Matthew, Jesus was announced publicly to be the Son of God at his baptism. But before his public ministry was going to begin... All of a sudden, it seems, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. You might have thought that right after that baptism and that announcement about here's the Son of God, that he would have started going bang, bang, bang and doing miracles and this and that. But no, he was he was led to be tempted. So why is this account here? Why in does it appear in Matthew chapter 4? Well... There are at least two important reasons. First of all, it confirms 
his identity as the son of God. He was said to be the son of God at his baptism. The voice came from heaven, from God the Father, right? This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he was announced to be the son of God, but the son of God is perfect, right? So we have to see that fleshed out. We have to see him face a temptation. We want to really know who he really is. And this passage helps us understand that. Secondly, there's a contrast here. This contrast with Israel who failed in the wilderness. So you had Israel as a son of God with a small s, and then you have Jesus as the son of God with a capital S being contrasted. We're going to find out that these three times Jesus was tempted, he quoted from the Old Testament. And all three passages come from a larger section in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. All of them come from a passage in the Old Testament that deals with the time that Israel was wandering in the wilderness. So here's Israel failing And Jesus succeeding. Here's Israel wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus is fasting for 40 days and he succeeds. And it's also true. Those, I think, are the two main reasons this passage is here. But from a practical standpoint, it's also really good to know that Jesus was fully God and fully human at the same time. And as being fully human, he experienced temptation just like you and me. So we can learn from what he experienced to help us in our battle against temptation. So let's walk through the passage. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, Contrary to what some people believe, the devil here is not just an impersonal force. The devil is not a representative of evil, but the devil is a, a real person a who is God's enemy, God's opponent, the arch enemy who is over all the spiritual host of darkness. He was once with God in heaven, but he rebelled against God the Father, and a third of the angels fell with him who are now demons. That's who is engaged here. It is the devil. He's called the the tempter. He's real, and he opposes God, and he opposes everyone who follows God. But he's not the one in control here. Maybe Satan wanted to tempt Jesus, but he could have never tempted Jesus if God the Father had not allowed it. Look how the passage starts. Jesus was led by whom? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him to this. In other words, God is in control. God is in control here. He's arranging this confrontation. The Holy Spirit is also a person and not just an impersonal force. Interesting in the original language here, the, the, the same original word means test and tempt. And that's two different things. Testing is different from temptation. But both of the aspects are here. God never tempts us to do evil. But God does test us. 
And God allows us to be tested. Here, God is using the temptation of the devil to test his son, to demonstrate that he is who he is. So let's answer that first question. What was Jesus being tempted to do? The first thing is he was being tempted to address physical desires apart from God's will. Physical desires apart from God's will. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, to prepare for his public ministry, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that prepared him spiritually for his ministry. But you know what else it did? It made him hungry. He was a human being. He had not eaten for 40 days. So he was hungry. There's nothing wrong with food. Food's a good thing, right? There's nothing wrong with bread. So where's the temptation here? If Jesus were the Son of God, and I don't think for one minute the devil doubted that. In fact, I think it's legitimate based on the original language and the context and the way the passage flows to translate the word if with the word since. It's like, I think he's saying, well, since you're the Son of God, then why don't you do this? In other words, if you're the Son of God or since you say you're the Son of God, You have the right to do anything. You have the right to take these stones and turn them into bread. But what was Jesus' mission? Jesus came here to this life, to this world, to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' mission. And to do that, he had to be fully God and fully human at the same time. And in that existence as fully God and fully human, he never gave up being God. He never gave up his power, his ultimate power or his divinity. But what he did have to give up was the independent use of his divine attributes. Yeah, of course he could have said, okay, poof, here's food, right? He could have done that. But that wasn't God's will for him. It was God's will for him to come and live, yes, as God, but also as human in that body. And so the temptation was, because he was hungry, to step outside of God's will and meet those physical desires, those physical needs, apart from God's will. You know, I think... I mean, I think temptation can kind of come in two different categories. I think there are some temptation that it's it's so very, very obviously evil that we know it, right? That it's, oh, I, I know that's temptation. But a lot of temptation, I think, can come from pe- things that are good in themselves, maybe. But yet we're tempted to use those good things in a way apart from God's will. Right? So let me give you a couple examples. Food. Food is a good thing, right? We need food. That's the way our bodies are made. We need food to give us energy and strength and protein and health and all of that. But are there ways that we can use food that don't honor God? 
Of course. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's eating not because we're hungry, but just for comfort, right? Oh, that's your comfort thing when you're struggling. You just, oh, you just starting. So food could be one of those things. Marriage might be one of those things. Marriage is from God. Marriage is a good thing. Marriage is ordained by God. And so somebody could say, oh, I just want to be married so badly that they end up marrying outside of God's will. They marry someone that has no interest in following God at all. And in that moment, their choice, they've, they've put the marriage over the desire to honor God, right? Maybe it's sex. Sex is a good, natural desire from God. God gives human beings a desire to be intimate with other human beings, right? It comes from God, but we can use sex outside of God's plan so that maybe maybe you're single and you're not married yet, or maybe you're in a marriage and you're not receiving the sexual fulfillment that you think you should be, and so you decide to go outside of the marriage bond to fulfill that, maybe through pornography or maybe through another person. Right. And in those ways, it's taking something that is good and yet using it apart from God's will. Does that make sense? I think that's what Jesus is being tempted here. It's good for him to eat, but it wasn't God's will in that moment. How many of you like chocolate? Anybody raise your hand with me? I love chocolate. How many of you have a cell phone? Raise your hand. You know, hey. Are those sinful? No. But if you eat too much chocolate, it could be. If you're addicted to your cell phone rather than using it and you're always on it and you're like this all the time, you might be taking time away from other things that are more valuable and you might be conditioning yourself not even to be able to sit still in quietness and silence and enjoy other people or God without having to have technology, right? So... Good things can become bad things. That's the first temptation. Let's move to the second one in verse 5. And that is to commit a selfish act that tests God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And that probably refers to the southeast corner It's about 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. And this is what he said to him in verse 6. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, the devil here is quoting Psalm 91, but he's quoting it out of context. Psalm 91 is a, is a beautiful passage about how God protects righteous peoples from danger. But it is not a passage about how we can put ourselves in harm's way and then expect God to, to protect us, right? I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And forget about the consequences and I'm going to make God save me, right? I'm going to walk into this upcoming traffic 
because God is going to protect me. Scripture can be misused. That's why it's so critical to use Scripture in context. Um, To use the Bible the way the Bible was intended. That's why we do what is known as expository preaching here. We... Every sermon is designed to take a passage of Scripture and to explain it and to understand what it meant to the people who first read it and then to apply it to us. We're not just taking good ideas and just sprinkling in a few Scripture verses here and there. Satan knew enough about the Scripture to misquote it in Psalm 91. It would have been wrong for Jesus in that moment. If he would have jumped off, would would God the Father have said? He would have been putting it to where God the Father, quote, had to intervene. And that was a test. And I think we can fall, if we think about how do we apply this, we can fall into the same trap if we think God exists to serve us rather than the other way around. And this can be manifested in our expectations, in the ways that we pray, in the ways that we interpret events in life. Do we think that God is there to serve us or we know that we're here to serve God? Well, the third temptation, third thing Jesus was being tempted to do was to take a shortcut to power and glory without Suffering. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, this is a temptation to get power by worshiping the rival of God, not God. It was a shortcut. In other words, Jesus' plan, the plan for Jesus was to come and live and go to the cross, right? And that was going to involve suffering. And Satan is showing him these things and saying, hey, you can have all this. And guess what? There will be no cross. There won't be any suffering. You won't have to pay any cost. So the temptation is to to get the power and glory without suffering, The biblical portrait of the Messiah includes both glory and suffering. I think we should ask ourselves, am I willing to trust God to provide and to trust him with his timing? Or will I take things into my own hands and try to make things happen myself? We're we're tempted today in, in many of the same ways that Jesus was. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them, for everything in the world. And here's kind of the three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Those are the three big categories that Satan always uses. In fact, if you go back to the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, you'll see this happen. 
Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So look at those same three categories that appear there. It was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. It was pleasing to the eye. That was the lust of the eyes. It, it was going to make her wise, right? She was going to gain wisdom, supposedly. That's the pride of life. So that's the first question. That's, that's the way, those are the ways Jesus was tempted. Let's go to the second question. How did he overcome the temptation? How did Jesus overcome the temptation? And over and over and over again, we see it's very simple. It was through the written word of God. Jesus overcame temptation by knowing, by believing, by acting on the word of God. Temptation always involves some sort of twisting of reality. And that's why the Bible is so important. Because this is reality. This is truth. This always brings us back to what's real and what's right. Temptation is trying to take us away from those things. So, Back when, in verse 3, when the tempter said to him, you know, tell these stones to become bread, what does Jesus do? He goes back to the Old Testament. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And again, if you go back and read Deuteronomy, you'll find God has done the miracle of taking his people, Israel, out of Egypt. And he's taking them into a promised land. And now they're going to have the opportunity to follow God. And there are all these instructions about here's how you follow God and here's how you honor God. And look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse to remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. See, they had been rescued and then they had wandered for 40 years. And now Deuteronomy is like the second giving of the law. What does he say? Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You may remember the story. They didn't, they were led into the wilderness. How are we going to feed ourselves? 
And every day God said, go out in the morning and collect enough food for the day. It was manna, this bread-like substance. And it was there for them every day. Why did God do that? Well, it's clear to teach them that you don't live on bread alone. You live on every word that comes from God's mouth. They had the opportunity to trust God, that God was going to take care of them. Even when they found themselves in a situation where, how did it, how is God going to take care of us? I don't, how can we have food, right? We're in the wilderness. And yet God drove Israel, his people to be hungry. To have to depend on him. To have to go out and get that manna every single day. And the desire, the aim was that so they would come to realize that God is God. That God is the provider. But life is about so much more than just food. Life is about living on the basis of every word that comes from the mouth of God. The important thing in life is not to satisfy your hunger, but it's to eat the word of God. And that's true for us today. The most important thing we can do is not just to satisfy our desires, whatever they are. It's to feed on God's word. It's to meditate on God's word. It's to rest in God's word. It's to organize our lives and our church around God's word. It was more important for Jesus to obey God's will than to fulfill his own hunger. Life isn't about meeting our physical needs, although if you look around in 21st century America, that's the message we get all the time, right? If if you want this, then go for it. Well, let's read Deuteronomy 6 before we go to the next two temptations because This is where the quotes are going to come from. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Now, let's go back to Matthew, and let's look at this second time. And this is the one where they're standing on the highest point of the temple, and he's saying, well, you know, throw yourself down. And what does Jesus say? Um, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So testing Jesus, God the Son, is testing God. It's something that's forbidden in Scripture. And so here in verse 7 of Matthew 4, Jesus quotes the warning that God gave Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, Israel was dissatisfied in the wilderness. They wandered around. They got to this place called Massa and another one called Meribah. And they didn't see food and they didn't see water. And they started grumbling against Moses like, why did you leave us out here? Why did you take? We were in Egypt. We had all this food in Egypt and now we're here. 
So they weren't trusting God in that moment. They were criticizing. They were testing God. They were demanding. And they said, is the Lord among us or not? How do we test God today? Well, I alluded to it earlier, how we view things. What do we expect? How we live and how we pray. There are many ways we can test God. The third temptation. This is where he's called to bow down and worship Satan. And then you'll have all these things. What does he do? He goes to the word of God. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, go away. Now Jesus is taking charge. He's taking charge. And once again, he's quoting out of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy 6.13. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take your oaths in his name. The issue is idolatry. The issue is who are you going to serve or worship? In the original language of the Old Testament, the, the, the same word can be translated both worship and serve, which is why it might be a little bit different in some of your translations. But the point is God deserves to be worshipped 100%. God deserves to be served 100%. And if we worship anyone else or anything else, it's not the right way. So... Do you see what's happening in Matthew chapter 4? Do you see what Jesus is doing over and over and over again? He keeps going back to the Word of God. This was not perfunctory. This was not just, oh, okay, can I think of a Bible verse that might apply here? No, he lived the Word of God. He knew the Word of God. And the Word of God helped him to overcome temptation. But I brought a couple of things to help me to illustrate an important qualification. This is a very old tool belt. <laughs> and if you're going to build something, you're going to wear a tool belt, and you're going to have it around you, and, and you're going to be able to reach in there and grab the tool that you need. I am not a handy person. And I think I've only worn one of these. Well, there was only one phase of my life. We When we bought our house... Parts of it, like the basement was unfinished. So with some help from other people, we kind of finished it ourselves. And I learned how to wear a tool belt. <laughs> and it's pretty cool to just reach it. Oh, yeah, here it is, you know, rather than looking all around for it, right? Tool belts are useful, and they, they give us a way to, to have a tool right at our disposal. But I don't want you to think that Jesus thought of the Bible is just, oh, here's another tool I can pull out, right? Instead of thinking of the Bible as a tool belt, I think Jesus thought of the Bible as food. Now, I want to tell you, life cereal is good food. I'm, I'm just saying. If you don't understand... This, send me an email or text and I'll set an appointment for you at 7 a.m. at my house to come and enjoy a bowl of life cereal with blueberries or strawberries. But we should think of food. The word of God is 
food. It was food for Jesus. It wasn't just a tool that he reached out and grabbed, right? It, it was his food. It just came out of him, right? Because he ate it all the time. Fortunately, though temptation is real, it, it doesn't have to win every time. Look at the last verse, if we go back to Matthew 4, the last verse in our passage. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. James 4 tells us, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So I want to wrap it up this morning by asking that last question. Here's the question. Now that we've seen how much Scripture meant to Jesus, the question is, how should the way that Jesus values Scripture impact us? And this is, I am speaking to believers in Christ. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, hopefully you'll see what he did to to make you a believer to save you, to bring you into a relationship with him. But for those who are, and, and today's a great day to open your heart to do that. But if you've already done that, what does the Bible say to us? And what does it say to us as a church? First of all, as a church, we must be shaped and defined by the Bible. We must always be shaped and defined by the Bible. That means all of our sermons need to be biblical. Every sermon needs to explain the Bible, not just be entertaining. That's one of the saddest realities in much of Christianity. The Bible is used very, very questionably because it's more about the charisma of the speaker than it is the truth of the book. The Bible defines us. That means it defines our groups That means we're not just all studying, wondering, oh, what does everybody think? No, what does the Bible teach us? This means when we make decisions, we don't make decisions primarily on what works, on what's pragmatic. We base, ask ourselves first, what does the Bible teach about this? Second, as a church, we must support Bible translation. You and I live in a country and share a common language that has many translations of the Bible in our language. I mean, I don't know how many the English translations there are. There are tons of them, right? But that's not true all over the world. Here's some stats from Wycliffe as of last fall about access to the Bible. So if you look at this chart, you can see that Out of all the languages, 736 languages throughout the world have a full trans, have the full Bible translated. That's about 10% of the languages in the world. So only about 10% of the people of the world can do what you and I can do, and that's to find a full Bible in their native language. Now, some scripture, if you look at the second one, some scripture uh, that's 3,658. So about half of all the languages have at least some scripture, maybe the New Testament, portions of the Old Testament. But there are still, even with all of this effort going on, the third line, there's still 1,268 languages or 17% of languages throughout the world 
that a translation hasn't even started. And the initial work has been started, but there's no scripture yet in another 1,320. So that's 18%. So in other words, one-third of the languages in the world have no scripture yet, even translated, even though some of it has been started. We, as a church, we have to support Bible translation. Thankfully, we have two of our missionaries that do that. Out of all our missionaries, every time you pray for John or Bonnie Nystrom, every time you pray for Chris or Mary Bowsman, you're supporting Bible translation. Every time you give an offering to this church, 20% of the offerings that you give on Sunday go to missionaries like the Nystroms and the Bowsmans who are working to translate the Bible in Papua New Guinea. So we have to support Bible translation. Third, as believers, we must view and use Scripture not just as promises for our own purposes, but as the way to learn God's will. Again, I think many people... Many people aren't interested in the Bible at all, but some people are like, okay, let me see how the Bible can help me. <laughs> now, the Bible does help us. There's no doubt about it. The Bible gives us comfort. The Bible gives us direction. But the fundamental purpose of the Bible is not to make you the best version of you or me the best version of me. It's to let us know this is who God is. And this is how we learn God's will. And this is how we follow God. And so let's, this is, this is kind of a, this is a uh, mindset. This is how we view scripture. Let's don't view scripture in that first way. Let's view it in the second way that, hey, this is a way to learn God's will. And then finally, as believers, we must treat scripture not just as a book we respect, but as food on which to feast. I think most Christians, Respect the Bible. If you were to ask the, the average Christian, do you respect the Bible? Is this from God? Is this a holy book? Yes, yes, yes. All right, that's good. But the challenge, since we know how Jesus views Scripture, is let's just don't treat it like that. Let's treat it like our food. Let's treat it, pardon the pun, like our life. Because it is, right? Now, if you do this, if you value the Word of God, that's our goal. That is our goal as a church, to value Scripture the way Jesus values Scripture. What will happen? The results are awesome. There are so many, but let me, do, let me just give you a few as we wrap up here. There will be spiritual fruit and success, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Or how about wisdom? Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. How about answered prayer? Psalm, or John 15, 7, Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, 
Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Spiritual victory. Ephesians six seventeen. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You'll be equipped to work for God. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you will overcome temptation. Psalm 119, 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Chuck Swindoll has been one of my favorite pastors to listen to through the years. He is, my wife told me the other day, because I sent her a link. Somebody sent me a link to one of his podcasts. I sent it to her. He's 89 years old and he's still pastoring in Texas. When he was pastoring in Southern California, one day he took, he took a trip to Canada. It was a 10-day trip. And he tells in one of his books about this. He was in this hotel. It was the end of the day. He was eating dinner. He was alone. He was lonely. He was by himself. He'd been gone from home eight days. He had two more days to go. So he decided to walk to his room, goes to the hotel elevator. And on the way to the elevator, he, hear, he sees two younger women that are talking and laughing. And he gets on the elevator and then he turns and they followed him onto the elevator. And they don't say anything. And, and, and so he pushes six because he was on the sixth floor. And so out of politeness, he turns to them and says, what floor would you like to go to? And one of them sensuously looks at him and says, how about six? Do you have any plans? The bait had been dropped. Listen to how he describes what happens Next, do you know what immediately flashed into my mind? My wife and four children? No, not at first. My position and reputation? No, not then. The possibility of being seen or being set up? No, God gave me an instant visual replay of Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Romans 6.11 and 12, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lust. He says, during that elevator lift, the memorized word flew to my rescue. Right on time, I looked back at the two and I replied, I've got a full evening planned already. I'm really not interested. Let's value Scripture the way that Jesus values Scripture. Amen.